everyone, Shirley here. Welcome to today's discussion about the strategic actions small government contractors should take to increase the value of their businesses in the dynamic, highly regulated federal marketplace. My observation is that small successful contractors have a choice. Do they want to build a business that others might want to acquire one day? Or is the business a lifestyle business? And there's nothing wrong with the lifestyle business, but many owners don't understand that they need to build value regardless. This discussion is about the factors and actions that result in creating market value. So you have options. I find that many business owners dream of cashing out, but they often don't understand the thinking and actions necessary to prepare their businesses years in advance. To help me sort through these issues, I reached out to Marty O'Neill, the Managing Director at Chesapeake Corporate Advisors. Welcome, Marty. Thank you, Shirley. It's uh, wonderful to be with you discussing such an important topic. It's a topic that literally can change the lives of business owners. I agree, and I've been through the process myself. So, Marty, tell our audience a little more about yourself and Chesapeake Corporate Advisors. Well, CCA is an investment banking and advisory firm, and we're totally focused on what we call the lower middle market. These are small to mid-sized privately held companies that are growing and building value, or those same companies that have decided it's time to realize that value or sell their companies. And as they're on this building value stage, we work with them on valuations, ownership alternatives, and strategic planning. When they're ready to realize that value, we help take them into the market through a disciplined process, which will help ensure that they've captured and realized all the value they've worked so hard to achieve. The work we do complements one another. I'm focused on business development planning and execution that creates value, and you're focused on helping companies then monetize that value. Let's begin with an understanding of why it is important to know the value of your company. Well, you may be one of those business leaders who's a bit hesitant to talk about the value of your business. You may not be interested in selling your business and, frankly, become a little bit nervous when using that value word in front of your employees. But as a C-level executive in a small or middle market company, your main priority and commitment to your company is really to build value. So if you're planning to go public in the future, you should be building value. If you plan to leave the company to your children, you should be building value. If you plan to run the company as a lifestyle company, you should be building value. If you plan to sell today, tomorrow, next year, or in five years, you should be building value. So, to know if you're building value, you have to know where you're starting from. So we say you want to baseline and build from there. We hear a lot about value drivers in the merger and acquisition context. Can you talk just a bit about value drivers and how that relates to value creation? Sure. Uh, value drivers are those factors in your business, and they're both internal or external, that when changed or altered or moved, they're going to have an impact on the value of your business. So think of value drivers as the gauges on your dashboard or your cockpit. There are core value drivers that every business, you know, such as the financial performance like revenue growth and earnings, and then there are specifics on, on what drives value in your market or your specific company. We find that the understanding of those value drivers gives clients the best results. 
Now, value creation, it's just the other side of the same coin, but it's a process. Creating or building value in a company results from knowing exactly what your value drivers are and then taking specific actions to move those cockpit gauges, hopefully, in a, in a positive direction. So, Marty, can your value really be known before actually entering the market when willing buyers begin to make offers? Well, let's take a small step backwards. Valuation, or the process of determining the value of your business, is done for a variety of reasons. You may be initiating an equity compensation program, or you may be buying out a partner, or it may be the component of a date planning, or it may be because you're considering entering the market and planning for that liquidity event. So let's say, then, for the sake of today's discussion, that we're a small or lower middle market government contractor who's beginning to explore what their options are for liquidity. Do they simply keep the company running and building value? Do they sell all or parts of the business? Do they sell to a strategic buyer or a private equity firm? Or do they sell to their employees or their management team? So understanding the market value of your business is critical as you start this process of learning how a willing buyer will ultimately value your business. Well, and we know what drives value in the GovCon market. Of course, the financials are critical. Revenue and revenue growth, earnings, and the quality of both those revenue and earnings streams. Along with gross margins, they play a critical role in the services-based GovCons because the labor pool will often have to fit into a new financial structure. Overhead, G&A, fringe, B&P rates should all be market-appropriate or aligned or better than your competitors. Now, the market segment or technology also drives value in the GovCon market. Niche tech companies supporting the Department of Defense or the Intel community with a focus on machine learning, for example, will be more valuable than a lower tech or engineering and construction company targeting civilian agencies. Let's explore this more fully. I advise my clients to always be creating value strategically. You can be haphazard and rely on serendipity, or you can do research and focus your resources on serving targeted agencies with innovative solutions that solve complex problems. I think that's very sound advice, Shirley. Uh, I'd add being intentional is the key. And you mentioned market segments and technologies. What are the major categories that successful federal government contractors should focus on in order to attain a high valuation? Well, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the acquirer or the investor. What are they looking for? Stable and growing revenue and earnings in a market that's also growing, you know, one with low risk. So really, a company with quality revenue and quality earning streams with little risk of downturn. Companies supporting the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, have recently been very attractive markets, and that will continue in the near future. You know, technologies such as cloud computing, cyber, big data, machine learning are also very hot. They're very in demand. I'm seeing that also, uh, Marty. Anything to do with artificial intelligence, but especially applying artificial intelligence to solve complex government problems, such as financial fraud and cybersecurity. But I'm also seeing innovations in such areas as managing human capital and job performance, 
applying agile concepts to program and organizational management, um, agile not just in app development, new nanotechnologies and precision manufacturing are also gaining traction in the federal sector. But in addition to these market sectors and technologies, I would imagine that the type of contract a company has won also has impact on the value of their company. Well, you bet, Shirley. Uh, Companies with full and open contracts or contracts in their early years will will value higher than companies with set-aside contracts. Why is that, Marty? Why why does it matter if the contract was a small business set-aside? There's a couple simple rules. The earlier, the better in the life cycle of the contract, and the more open, the better. So full and open prime contracts are obviously more appealing because they offer a flexibility to the acquiring entity that set-aside contracts or subcontracts don't always allow. That said, in, in certain market segments, very desirable technologies and a cleared workforce can still get solid or premium valuation. Let's explore this a little bit more also. I'm a small business or I have a high percentage of my contract revenues tied up in set-aside contracts. What are the challenges I have in determining my value and my marketability? Well, the federal government has specific regulations on the transfer of contracts, you know, with set-aside clauses. So remember, the the acquirer is not looking for more risk in set-aside contracts. So... 8A, women-owned, service-disabled contracts, present a challenge to the acquirer that they're rarely willing to undertake. And there's nothing wrong with set-aside contracts. They can be used strategically to gain expertise, develop intellectual property and relationships. But talk to us now about gross margins and earnings, Marty. Well, we often see companies, and especially in this tight labor market, that end up overpaying for labor and find themselves with lower-than-expected earnings or gross margins that might not fit into the economics of the acquiring company. So we suggest that small companies with attractive market niches or maybe even a unique uh, intellectual property and technology, they should also ensure that their cost structure is equally as attractive to a buyer or investor. So are you saying that you can be too generous in paying your key personnel, which will devalue your company in the marketplace? So acquiring companies will look at a selling company's G&A, their overhead, their fringe, their B&P, all those costs, and they'll make a determination where there can be cost savings during the integration process, sort of the post-acquisition process. But low gross margins take much longer to correct, and since they're labor-related, they require either newer or higher labor rates or lower labor costs, or both. The former takes time to correct, and the latter requires pay cuts, which will cause all sorts of problems. And most businesses would not tune into that. Marty, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Marty O'Neill, Managing Director at Chesapeake Corporate Advisors, about value creation and value drivers in the GovCon market. When we come back, we'll talk about who's buying. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This Growth Masters Federal presentation is hosted by Shirley Collier, President and Founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think 
plan, collaborate, and build market value by developing and executing customized, data-driven business development playbooks, building efficient information systems, and creating high-performing BD teams. Utilizing the proprietary Davey Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to increase their company's value by achieving profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to learn more about the Davy Growth Framework and how it can be instrumental in helping grow your federal contracting business. Back now to Shirley's conversation with Marty O'Neill, Managing Director at Chesapeake Corporate Advisors, as they discuss the factors that drive business value in the federal marketplace. Welcome back. Before the break, we were discussing margins, earnings, and paying key personnel. Let us now turn our attention to the buy side. When we read about recent transactions in the federal market, there seems to be new players. Can you discuss who makes up the buyer base these days? Well, the buyer base has expanded in the last five years. We've always had their strategic buyers, those mid-sized and larger GovCons who are generally familiar with the market and look for specific add-ons in technology or geography or, or market segment. Private equity has been in government contracting for years, but the number of private equity firms and funds have expanded uh, rapidly in recent years. Now, these firms typically will invest in a platform company and then look for companies that fit their profile and strategy with the goal of building value through both organic and acquisitive growth and then realizing that value in an arbitrage play that places greater value on a larger company. Okay, let's unpack this. What do you mean by platform company? Well, often private equity will have a specific strategic intent. That might be a market focus like national security or technology focus like cloud computing. They'll look for a company to be the anchor or the platform of that strategic intent. And generally, the platform is going to be a mature, lower middle market company with sound leadership and infrastructure that will allow this private equity firm to build upon that solid foundation, that that platform, if you will. And what is arbitrage? Well, arbitrage typically means taking advantage of a price difference between two or more markets. In in our case, the asset class we're talking about is is GovCons, specifically service-based GovCons. And we see that these same GovCons can realize the higher value, frankly, when when they're bigger. So the sum of a platform company with two to five additional acquisitions will value higher than each of their individual parts. And the private equity guys are banking on multiples of valuation being higher in general with this increased size. So what size does a company need to be in order to be acquired? Well, size is one element that goes into how attractive a company is in the market. For services companies... Uh, Size is important because it's the quality of the revenue and the earnings streams that investors or acquirers are focused on. And with that size, you know, unless all that size is with one customer, generally risk can be reduced. Size plays a little bit less of a role in a product or an intellectual property-based company. Niche product companies with just enough sales to prove product viability can be acquired, 
But remember that earnings will always play a significant role in what a willing buyer will pay. So going back to the size of a service-based company, what has been your experience in terms of the revenue size of typical target companies? So let's keep reminding ourselves that value is, is mainly a function of earnings, not revenue. So if we consider what a PE firm will look for in a platform company, then revenue is probably in that $30 million plus range. Add-ons or tuck-ins, these are companies that are acquired to fit into the acquirer's strategy or the private equity-backed platform company strategy. They can be much smaller and, and really will depend on the drivers we discussed earlier, the market segment, the technology, the quality of the earnings streams, the leadership team, et cetera. Because very few business owners sell more than one business, this process is new to them. Can you talk about what happens when a business owner decides they are ready to put their business on the market? And what is the process in terms of valuation, goal setting, business development planning, valuation, et cetera? Shirley, we talk a great deal about pre-diligence planning in our firm. I like to think of it in two areas. The first is what we've been talking about, the value creation phase. And that should be occurring for years prior to any transaction. The second area is this pre-diligence planning phase. My colleague Charlie Maskell and Tim Brazel on our investment banking team place great emphasis on a discipline process. So it is, it's a six to nine month process beginning with the knowledge transfer, uh, getting to know the firm, then a creation of collateral, which, which we then you know, kind of take into the market, followed by outreach to interested parties. Then um, we collect these indications of interest. And finally, working through a myriad of details with buyer's offers to, to diligence to negotiation. We spend a great deal of time with owners educating them on probable value of their company, potential structures of a deal, and then all the associated risks for, for those. It's a complicated process, and we would always recommend finding an advisor or an investment banker that you're really comfortable with. Marty, I agree. And I want to emphasize the value creation component of that equation, which happens years before putting your business on the market. And this is what my team and I concentrate on, is helping companies to figure out what is their unique service that is highly valued in the marketplace and to obtain the right mix of federal clients and contracts that will attract multiple buyers. So what we are both saying, I think, is that it takes two to three years of preparation, then six to nine months of working with an investment banker to then find a buyer and conclude the transaction. I think that's about right, Shirley. So what is the business owner's responsibilities throughout this process? Well, keeping their eye on the prize, understanding what their alternatives are, and execute a strategy around that intended outcome. It's back to that same premise. If you're planning to go public in the future, you should be building value. If you plan to leave your company to your children, you should be building value. If you plan to run your company as a lifestyle company, you still should be building value. And if you plan to sell today, tomorrow, next year, or in five years, guess what? You should be building value. So when, then when you decide on a liquidity event, the time is right for you, 
to then follow a really disciplined process, build your team of accounting, legal, investment bankers in order to realize all the value you've, you've spent so many years creating. Marty, as we wrap up here, what final advice do you have for our audience? So almost all of the government contracting leaders I've met over the years have an unbelievable focus on their mission. It's almost always centered around their customer's mission. And I have to tell you, Shirley, it's inspirational. The one question I ask these same leaders is, what type of business are you building? The challenge is to take that same passion around the mission of the customer and turn that on your business. Be intentional about the type of business you're building. Develop a laser-like focus on value creation. Know all of your liquidity options. And when the time's right for you and your stakeholders, realize that value through a, a disciplined liquidity process. Have a strategy and be intentional. I agree, Marty. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with our audience today. Thanks, Shirley. It's been my pleasure. Folks, if you would like to get in touch with Marty, he can be reached at moneil at ccabalt.com. That's M-O-N-E-I-L-L at C-C-A-B-A-L-T dot com. Or you can reach out to us here at Scale to Market, and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier, president of Scale to Market and host of the Growth Masters Federal Podcast, signing off for now. As we close, I want to thank you for joining us today and encourage you to connect with me on LinkedIn and visit our website, that's scaletomarket.com with the number two in the middle, where you will find our library of podcasts, webcasts, white papers, my blog, and other links and resources. While there, please leave us a comment or suggestion so we can stay focused on what's important to you. We'll see you next time.